God will save you. To gaze at him will sanctify you. And folks, that's what we will do in glory. So thankful that Cody and our team has led us this morning in that song, beautiful song. As you're finding your way in your Bible to First First Timothy chapter 5, we're looking at house rules, and today we're going to do part two of a two-part message on the church's ministry. We're thinking about the family of God today. I had a a big family growing up. Anybody here have a big family? All right, I had a big, and you know, you know how that is when family gets together and everybody sits around the table and everyone enjoys a meal together. There's food everywhere and and there's enjoyment and laughter and all that. I've known people that didn't have a big family and they've witnessed my family getting together and they'd say things like, "Man, I wish I had a big family like that," or "Man, this is wonderful that you all." do this and that you have this wonderful time together. And I'm, I'm so jealous of this. And uh, it made me think about, as I was studying the passage uh, this, the past couple of weeks, thinking about this, I thought about Charles Dickens' classic novel uh, that you, you know about. It's kind of an allegory or a fable, um, but it's uh, A Christmas Carol and how Ebenezer Scrooge was ushered by the ghost of Christmas present to his nephew's house. And he's kind of sitting on the outside looking in on this family gathering where he he was invited, but he chose not to go. And they're, they're having Ebenezer for dinner. They're talking about Ebenezer. And they're thinking about, how they wish that he was there. And even though he's a Scrooge, and sometimes he's kind of nasty, and one of the ladies says, I can't even tolerate him. Well, his nephew pipes up and says, you know, he may be a nasty guy, but we sure wish he was here. And then, and then he looks, and there's all this food at the table that... He's not able to eat because he's not there. And he sees them playing their games and laughing and singing and all of those things, and he's not there. And folks, as he's looking in on that family and their gathering, he becomes jealous of that. And this is the picture that Paul gives us whenever he describes the family of faith. He says, this is the way that we should be. Whenever the world looks at us, they should look at the love and the fellowship and the joy that we have in our gathering. The world around us should see that and long for it and be jealous of it and want to be a part of it. Instead, sometimes what we have with churches in in our world today is a group of people that really can't get along with each other and they rub each other the wrong way and there's always tension and fighting and and hostility in the church. And so the world looks in on that and says, I got enough of that at home. I don't need that at church. I don't want to be a part of that. So let's go over the house rules because we remember that Paul is giving Timothy these rules for the assembling of the body of believers together saying, listen, this is how you behave in the household of faith. And listen, even if I don't come, which Paul is telling Timothy several times, he's going he's to show up 
and check in on this church at Ephesus and make sure they're doing what they should be doing. But he says, even if I don't come, here are the rules. Here is how you should behave when you come together. And so let's just go over the rules that we've that we've gone over before. The first rule that we said is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that means that we are about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not about a a list of rules. We're not about uh, dressing a certain way, talking a certain way, or all those things. We're about the message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died on a sinner's cross in your place so that you can have the forgiveness of sin and have the gift of eternal life. That's what we're about. That's the main thing. And we want to keep that the main thing. And then here's the second thing, the second rule, that this house shall be called a house of prayer, that when we come together, we are communing with Almighty God and that we are inviting other people to come into the presence of God. And then rule number three is follow your leaders. And we talked about the church's management and how God has ordained certain people to lead the church. And ultimately, all authority is Jesus, belongs to Jesus. And then fourthly, come hungry, leave happy. We said that last week. We said, if you come hungry for the word of God, you will be fed the word of God, and then you will leave happy. And you will be a benefit to those around you because you have been fed the word of God and you, you're fully nourished spiritually. And then here's the rule for today. Okay, you ready for it? Family comes first. I love that rule because I have a big family and we are all about love and loyalty to each other. And we, we, we're serious about that. I remember whenever I was younger and we were out on the ball fields, not on the field, but we were out beside the field. You know how kids play whenever other people are having their games and the other kids aren't on the field yet? Well, that was happening. I was getting ready for my ball game. My brother had finished his game, and we were still out there on the fields. And some of the other boys started picking on my brother. And whenever they started picking on my brother, I had this feeling that started way down there and started rising right up through here, and it went right up to the top of my head. And I balled my fists up, and I made an angry face, and I punched one of them in the nose. Now, granted, he was about a year and a half younger than I was, so I should have had no business punching him, but I did because he was messing with my brother. And, you know, that, that loyalty that, that rises up in us, you know, for our blood relatives, the loyalty that we have and the love that we have for them, that, should, that is indicative of what the church should look like. We should love each other and keep this in our hearts that family comes first. Now, Paul says this in the book of Ephesians. It's, you don't have to turn there. I have the words on the screen in Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And we say it is, you used to be disconnected from the household of God. You used to be an alien and a stranger. You used to be a nobody. You were outside of the family. But now, listen, you are fellow citizens with the saints. More than that, not just are you not only are you a citizen of heaven, not only now do you have a homeland and a country in heaven, but now you are members of the household of God. Members of the household. You belong here. No matter what age, Paul's going to say, 
All Christian brothers and sisters are a part of the family. No matter how much you can contribute, you're part of the family of God. No matter what ethnicity, no matter what background, no matter what social economic status, no matter whether you're red or blue or whatever, whatever kind of car you drive, even if you drive a Prius, you're still part of the family of God. Or a big old truck, it doesn't matter, Adolfo. You're part of the family of God. Now let's stand together and we're just going to read verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy. Miss Sarah, just verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Then we'll pray. Now listen to the, the, how Paul tells Timothy to relate to these people as family members, okay? And this language is all throughout the chapter. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. As you would a father. Younger men. As what? As brothers. Older women as. Mothers. Younger women as. Sisters. In all. Purity. Let's pray. Father. I'm so thankful for your word today. Father Lord. I thank you that you would. Call me. A son. And Father, I pray that today we would look at the people to the right and to the left of us. We would recognize with all purity, with all humility, and with all gratitude that we're among family. And as such, Lord, we should treat each other as members of the household of faith, co-heirs of the grace of life valuable, worth a seated, worthy of a seat at the table. And today, Lord, renew our hearts, Lord. Remove from within us any bitterness or hostility or resentment that we might have today. If there's one today that needs to offer forgiveness, I pray, Lord, that they would not wait, but they would do that, have that settled in their heart today. Lord, if there's one today, even before they come to the table, Lord, if they know that they need forgiveness, that they would go and they would get that settled today. Lord, we thank you so much that you looked upon us and decided, Lord, not to cast us out, but to invite us in. May we be examples of that grace and love to every single person that we know. Lord, give me words now that I might encourage us to this end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I have a fairly fairly simple outline, but it's kind of a when. When, and then if, and then here it is, what we should do. When someone is down, what? Lift them. When someone is down, lift them up. Now, everything I'm going to say this morning is absolutely contrary to the way the world operates out there. But just to remind you of what Paul says again, verses 1 and 2, do not rebuke an older man is what he says to Timothy. Now, everything that Paul is saying to Timothy is normative for Timothy and for his church. But for you and I today, we see the principles of what Paul taught Timothy and we recognize that it applies to everyone. So every person that's in the household of faith, 
uh, has the same responsibility. And so I want us to see that this is not just the pastor's responsibility. This wasn't simply Timothy's responsibility, but this is every person in the church's responsibility. That we operate this way, the way that Paul is describing to Timothy. Now he says this word, do not rebuke an older man. This The Greek word literally means to sharply rebuke. In some, some Greek translation, uh, some of your Bible translations translate the Greek word that way. Don't sharply rebuke him. Another translation says do, to rebuke harshly. Don't harshly rebuke someone. And then the literal word there in the Greek literally means to strike with words. So Paul tells Timothy, don't throw words at people whenever they're down. Now that's, that's the opposite of the way the world operates because when someone is down, what does the world do? The world pounces on that person and the world kicks that person while they're down. The world continues to throw harsh criticism at that person when they're down. And the Bible teaches us that that's not the kind of people that we should be, but that we should be the Barnabas type people. You know what Barnabas' name means? It means son of encouragement. And that's the kind of people that you and I should be. We should be encouragers. So Paul tells Timothy, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. To go up beside him is what the word means, to call beside. So what uh, Paul is telling Timothy to do, okay, so here's someone who's down. They they may have made a mistake. They may have be suffering. Whatever the cause may be, they're down. And there's a lot of people in our world around us right now today that are just down. They're depressed. You look at the statistics and they're telling us that people are more depressed in the last couple of years than ever in the history of the United States. People are just down and depressed. When you look at all the things that are happening in our world, it's no wonder. But we know that we have hope in Christ that this isn't the end that he's going to come back for his church. And so we have great hope and we have enthusiasm for every day. And so for you, if you have that perspective, and Paul is telling Timothy to have that perspective as well. If he has that perspective, his job is to call those that are down to come beside him, to pull them to his side and encourage them, to lift them up and to walk along beside them. It's interesting that this same word that Paul uses saying to encourage is the exact same word that Paul uses other places to describe, and Jesus himself uses to describe the role in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Right, Brother David? Where are you at, bro? <clears throat> That's the same word. He's our paraclete. Paracleo is the word. And what it means is to call him, call him alongside. So you have the opportunity to do that every time we come together. You do. How many of you have been a, been a beneficiary of someone coming up beside you, putting their arm, on, their hand on your shoulder and saying, I'm glad to see you. I'm glad you're here. Yeah, amen. Me too. I tell you, this morning whenever I came into my office, I had a card on my desk. Uh, actually, it was in my box. I had a card. I brought it out. And I said, you know what? I know who that's from. I'm not going to tell you who did it, okay, because I don't want to embarrass her. But I had that card sitting there, and I opened it up, and I read it, and it was just the most wonderful note of encouragement that I could have received. And I was so thankful that I had that waiting for me whenever I came in my office. It's so wonderful. 
we have the ability. And what Paul is reminding Timothy is, listen, words can either build up people or words can tear them down. And, and whoever invented that little rhyme that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, they obviously had never been criticized. Because it hurts when you're criticized. But remember, listen, not, not only does it hurt when you're criticized, it heals whenever you're encouraged with words. It brings life to you. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And Paul tells Timothy, don't sharply rebuke, don't criticize, don't cut down someone whenever they're doing wrong or they've done wrong. Instead, encourage them. Don't criticize them whenever they're down on their luck or they're hurting. Encourage them. Build them up. And so Paul reminds Timothy, when someone is down, lift them. And this is all the more prevalent, the more you see Paul expand upon this, as he says, not just for a father, an older man as a father, but younger men as brothers. Make sure that the younger, and, and listen, we can talk about age-based ministry and how that's appropriate for the church, and it certainly is, and it's normative here, as Paul mentions it here to the Ephesian church, that we have older folks in the church, we have younger folks in the church, we have men in the church, we have women in the church, we've got children, we've got all of these people in the church, and so our ministry should be appropriate for each of those age groups. And Paul is recognizing that we have all of those age groups in the church. And one, one age group shouldn't look down upon the other age group. And the men shouldn't say the women can't do anything. And the women shouldn't say the men are good for nothing. And all of those things that happen in the church should be for the benefit of the whole body and recognizing that we are going to have older people and they're going to have their own thoughts. And we're going to have younger people and they're going to have their own thoughts. But we can be in harmony with one another if we love one another. I remember... Uh, my sister and I, we used to fight like cats and dogs all the time. And I remember there was a day, and I may have shared this story before. If I have, that's okay. You've probably forgotten it by now. It, um, <laughs> so my, my sister and I we were fighting in the backyard. My mom and dad were working up on the front yard, beautiful yard that we used to have with a pond and a pond dam. And he was planting azaleas along the pond dam and, there, and dogwood trees on the pond dam. We were supposed to be in the backyard raking leaves. And that was our job. We were just supposed to be raking leaves. Well, we were fighting about it. She didn't like the way I was raking, and I didn't like her. So um, we were fighting, and we were hitting each other. And when my dad found out about it, we were in big trouble. He called, he called for us to come to the front to the pond dam where he was. And we both came up to the pond dam. By then, I knew I was in trouble, so I was already—I already had tears. And my sister, she was on the—she was up there telling him how stupid I was, and she was probably right. But he said, "Okay, okay, I've had enough of this. I've absolutely had enough of your fighting. You're going to hit each other. You're going to do it right in front of me if you're going to do it." And he, so he said. So he said, I want you to go ahead and get this out. I want you to just fight it out right here. And he turned to her and he said something I'll never forget. He said, Jenny, that's your brother. I want you to hit him. And when he said it that way, 
She couldn't do it. She said, no, I, I don't want to hit him, Daddy. He said, you just wanted to hit him back there in the backyard? Go ahead and hit him right now. No. And then he looked over at me and he said, Josh, that's your sister. There she is. Hit her. No, Daddy, I don't want to hit her. <laughs> he said, no, no, you want to hit her in the backyard? You hit her right now. And so I went over and I went. And I'd love to say that that life lesson taught us to never fight again and we never hit each other ever again. I wish I could say that. But what it did teach me was that she's my sister and I should love her. I'm her brother and she should love me. And the fighting that we do, Lord, help us. We do it right in front of our Heavenly Father. He sees it all. When someone is down, lift them. But I want to tell you secondly, if I can see my notes, when someone is out, carry them. When someone is down, we lift them. When someone is out, We carry them. Now, Paul goes through this lengthy discussion, and we won't get into all of the details, but I'm going to summarize, and you can go back and read it. He begins to talk about widow and family ministry in the church. And we have some wonderful deacons in the church that take care of this, but listen, it's not simply the pastor's responsibility or the deacon's responsibility. This is the responsibility of every member of the church to care for those who are out. And when I say out, what I mean is they're sick, They're shut in. They're in the hospital. They can't be here with us. There's things that are going on in their lives that are preventing them from being an active member of the body. And when Paul mentions these widows, he says, make sure that you take care of widows who are truly widows. Some of your translations say widows indeed. Verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. And then he goes on to talk about the, the qualifications of those people. And he talks about enrolling them. To enroll them meant that they were now totally dependent upon the church. The church was going to take care of their needs. This meant that the impetus to provide for the basic necessities of food, clothing, water, and shelter fell squarely upon the church and specifically to the women that could care for them. And we we see also in the book of Acts that the deacons were charged with this. Remember that during this time, there is no uh, social government welfare programs. There's, There's no Medicare. There's no Social Security. There's no nursing homes. There's no senior living facilities. All of these things are the result of a society that's informed by the Word of God, a Christian society that's informed by the Word of God on their responsibility to care for the elderly. Okay? I'll give you even a modern example. If you go to China, there are none of these programs. There are none of these welfare programs because China is predominantly secular in everything that it does. 
And so, in fact, I saw this from the National Library of Medicine. This is what they said. In China, to date, self-sustaining, community-based, long-term care services remain largely non-existent except for a few major urban centers like Shanghai. So even there, the impetus falls upon the family and the people of faith to care for those who are down and out. But listen to the qualifications for these widows. In order to be a true widow, the one who really would be enrolled and be dependent on the church is, number one, she has to be dependent. She has to have no one else to take care of her in verses 4 and 5. The burden of responsibility to care for the aging parents always falls to the children. Look at verse 4 with me. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. By the way, them is the children or grandchildren, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. I'm so, I'm so thankful that we have people in our own church that do this. I, I'm so saddened to lose, I say lose, I'm so saddened to uh, allow the, the Westmans to move on to somewhere else to minister. But you know why they left, though? They left so that they could care for her aging parents. Listen, if you're going to leave our church, that's a good reason. That's a good example. And Paul says, listen, it is the responsibility of you as a child to care for your aging parents. They took care of you. My mother used to say, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. And she brought me into this world with pain and suffering and then raised me in pain and suffering and tears and heartache and all of those things. Now, listen, as she gets older, the responsibility falls upon me and my siblings to take care of her. And Paul says this is a principle for every person in the church. And and remembering that family comes first doesn't only mean the household of faith, but because the impetus to care for aging parents falls upon the children and grandchildren. And so when we think about that family comes first, we have a role to play. But Paul says that this woman, if she's going to be enrolled, has to be dependent. Not only that, she needed to be devoted in her life to the church and to God. And, so, and, and also to prayer. Look at verses 5 through 6 with me. She is truly a widow, left all alone. She has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. Now listen to verse 8. I want us to think about this for a moment. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are strong words in the Scripture. And what Paul is saying is, listen, you and I have a responsibility to our family to take care of them. He goes on and he gives more qualifications in verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. So she's devoted to her husband. She has a reputation of good work. She has brought up children. She's devoted to her children. 
She has shown hospitality and washed the feet of the saints and cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. She's devoted to the church. She's a devoted woman. But all of these things are because she is devoted to God. And then he goes on to say that she is dependable. You can depend on her. She has a reputation of good works in verse 10. And then she's dedicated. When you think about the word hospitality, hospitality, we know that that's about serving and that's about giving and that's about loving. I think about all of the food that the widows are going to bring to teenagers on Thursday for the potluck meal. And I can't wait to see what they bring. Cared for the afflicted. Dedicated to church. Dedicated to serving. Dedicated to the Lord. And then he gives some restrictions and he says, not younger women, not younger widows, even though, listen, they've lost their husband, so they are down, but they're not truly out. So make sure that younger women marry. Now, here's, why, here's his reasoning. He says that refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And what he's talking about is, listen, some of them, because they're of marital age, they're eligible to be married, they may possibly go and marry a non-Christian man and let that pull them away from the church. And because... They have been enrolled. They signed up to say, okay, I need the church to take care of me. Now they go back on that word. And they bring reproach because of that. And Paul says, we don't want that happening. So here's what we want to do with the young women, young widows that they've lost their husbands. He says, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. And then he goes on to say in verse 15 that this is probably already a problem in the church of Ephesus. Because he says in verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. And so Paul is saying, younger widows, let them marry. Don't let them burn up in their passions. Now, this doesn't apply to everybody, but here is the principle of it all. God is saying that we have responsibility to care for widows who truly need that care. But then if we broaden that and we say, listen, every person who is down and out and afflicted needs care from the church, that they should get a special touch from the church. If you're hurting and you're sick, where do you turn? You turn to the government, you turn to the doctors, you turn to all of the the people out there in the world around you. Well, Paul says you ought to be able to turn to the church and the church come alongside you and the church carry you along. I I think about one particular person that we had a home-going service for just recently. It was Miss Evelyn Barnes. She was such a perfect example of this. She cared for her own parents, her in-laws, her neighbors, and anyone truly close to her. And the reason why, the motivation behind all of this is because we know the care that God gives to us and how he's carried us. In my grandmother's parlor in her house, uh, well, really just basically a little foyer in her house, I remember the, the, the plaque 
with the poem Footprints on that. You remember the poem Footprints? Indulge me a minute while I read it. Is that okay? We read it sometimes. I want to read it to you. One night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonging to him and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in his life. This really bothered him, and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why when I needed you the most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, my son, my precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Amen. The Lord carries us whenever we are down and out. And he calls us to carry. Who, who, Whose weight needs to be carried by you? Remember, as you carry others, Jesus is carrying you. Thirdly, when someone is serving, bless them. I don't want to get too deep into this, but Paul commanded that elders receive their due compensation. He says, the elders who rule, let them... Uh, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. When we think about that principle, Paul expands on this a lot in 1 Corinthians, and he says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And he gives this, this metaphor, and he talks about an ox treading out, threshing out wheat. Now, we don't, we don't see this because we're not a, an agrarian society, but these people depended on animals to help them eat, Right? We don't really depend on animals to help us eat. Machines do all that, but we depend on animals for food, right? So we're a little bit different society, but they were dependent on the animals. And so the command was don't put a muzzle over the ox that is treading out the wheat so that you can make flour that makes bread out of that. Don't put a muzzle on him. Let him eat part of it. It seems like a weird principle, and it's like, well, why would God say all this? Well, apparently some people did this. But more than that, Paul says the command is not for the animal. The command is for people, and the principle is when someone is serving, take care of them. Take care of their needs. So when we think about the ministry of the church, one of the biggest Parts of the ministry of the church is taking care of those who are leading and serving and teaching, blessing them. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stand on this ground that Myrtle Grove Baptist Church will pay people.
that we require ministry service from. We will pay for them. We're not going to ask people to work for free or for less than minimum wage. I'm going to stand on that. And you know that I will. And then he goes on to say, don't entertain accusations. He says, we think about this in verse 19, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And we've got that happening right now in our Southern Baptist Convention. I I ask you to pray for the Southern Baptist Convention right now, for the things that are going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. But once again, when we expand the principle, we see that this isn't just about pastors and those serving. This is about anybody. Anybody and everybody who serves in the church needs a pat on the back. They need someone else to fix their plate for them whenever they're serving in the line and they can't fix their own plate. They need someone else to help them to to maybe come up beside them and take out the trash or clean the dishes. They need someone else to help them whenever they're ministering to other people to go alongside them to the hospital or to make that phone call for them. Everybody needs to work together for this and to support one another and to bless those who serve. It's okay to make a big deal out of somebody when they do a good job, to get them up here in front of everybody and say, hey, you did a great job. And we do that here. When someone is serving, bless them. Here's the last point. When someone is sinning, rebuke them. And we say, well, hold on, Pastor Josh. Didn't Paul just say, don't rebuke the older man? Yeah, he did. But he used a different word. This second word here, rebuke, doesn't mean to sharply cut them down with a tongue. It doesn't mean to throw words at them. What it means is to show them. That's what the word mean, The word rebuke means. Show them what they've done. So look at what he says here again. Uh, he says in verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, they go on sinning, rebuke them. In other words, show them what they've done and tell them that it's wrong in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What what is it that Paul wants them to be afraid of? What is it that Paul is saying? And what he's saying is that sin is like cancer in the church. Sin always hurts someone. And if you're the one sinning today, the Spirit of God has already rebuked you. And he's saying, stop hurting people. Because sin always hurts someone. And so he's calling us to all repent whenever we sin. So if you're one of those lucky people, when I say that, I say that facetiously. Whenever you are one of those people that God has appointed in that moment to be the voice into the life of the other person, speak up. And he goes on and he says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of his elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. And what that means is you can't allow someone who's sitting next to you to keep on sinning just because you like that person. You can't allow them to continue doing what they're doing because you don't want to hurt their feelings. All right, because here's the thing. When you do that, you let your brother or sister stand on the railroad track 
and the train is coming down the track and the whistle is blowing and it's going to run them over and all that God is asking you to do is push them off the track. And that's all you got to do. And let God take care of the consequences of that. So Paul told Timothy, rebuke them. But do it so that you'll save others as well. Do it in the presence of everybody. Don't do it in secret. Do it in the presence of everybody, Paul says. Meaning, listen, if, they, if you go to them in private and they don't listen to you, then it's time to involve some other people. You've got to involve some other people. Don't just let them play on the track. And that's not, that's not a fun thing. But here's the thing. Sin never happens in a vacuum. You don't get to just sin on your own and expect that it hurts no one. It always hurts someone. And here's, here's the deal. Jesus died because of your sin. That's how serious it is. He stretched his arms out on the cross for our sin. And maybe today, as you bow your heads and you close your eyes, you know that the Spirit of God is convicting you of sin in your life. Maybe that sin is that you haven't loved your brother or your sister the way that you should have. And as you persist in that, it's, an, it's a cancer that's eating away not only at your relationship, but at the church itself. And we've got to get it right. Maybe that sin is something personal that no one in the world knows about but you, but you need to get it right and you need to bring it to the altar today. And maybe you're sitting here with your sin and you're saying, I just don't know if the Lord would ever love me. Let me remind you that the same Jesus that is calling you today is the Jesus that dined with sinners, that He welcomed in prostitutes and tax collectors the dregs of the, of the society that day Jesus sat at the table with them and he forgave them and he called them out of that sin he forgave them the same Jesus loved you enough to die on the cross for your sin he's saying to you today if you'll repent, put your faith in me. He's saying, put your faith in me. He'll forgive you. He'll make you a new person. He'll add you to the family of faith. He'll give you a seat at the table. See, he gave up his seat at the table. To come to this earth and die for you. So that one day you would be in heaven and you could take that seat at the table. And forever be in the household of God. So if that's you today and you want to do that, I want to leave you in a prayer. It's a simple prayer. 
just your confession to God and your desire for Him to save you. So you pray this prayer with me. Say, Dear Jesus, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I've done what's wrong and I've failed to do what I know is right. And I deserve the penalty for my sin. Jesus, I believe that you died for me on the cross. That you are Savior. And that you were raised again on the third day. And you're in heaven. And you are Lord. So I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Give me a home in heaven with you. A seat at the table. Give me a family of faith. I'll spend the rest of my life loving you and serving you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? This invitation is for you. We're going to come to the table in just a moment and receive the Lord's Supper before we leave. So this invitation is for you to come. If you've asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, we want to welcome you to the table. We want to welcome you to the family of faith. And we want to love you and pray with you and give you resources so that you can grow in your faith. We want to offer you the opportunity to be be baptized in obedience to Jesus. So you come. Don't hold that in. Let us know what Jesus has done for you. If you're coming today to join the family of faith here at Myrtle Grove Baptist Church, and you know this is where God has called you to be, this is your invitation. If you simply need to come to the altar and pray with someone, make confession, or 